Well, good morning and welcome again. Welcome especially to the family members who are here uh, for Steve Hall's ordination. We're glad that you're here with us and hope you'll have a, a warm welcome here at InTown. Of course, we are participating in a fairly unusual service here this morning. Ordaining a pastor is not a, a very common thing, but it's something that we're really excited about. And so part of this sermon will be to you as an attendee, and some will be to Steve. Um, and then we'll have him up in just a moment, as well as some members from our presbytery, which is our, our regional governing body of our church, to have this ceremony with Steve. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we have been going through uh, the Gospel of Luke, and this morning we arrive at the Sermon on the Plain, the very beginning part of Jesus' sermon that is normally called the Beatitudes. And this is Luke chapter 6, 17 through 22. Follow along with me in your bulletin. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are those who weep, are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would grant us understanding. Would you grant us seeing, hearing, understanding hearts? Would you bestow your blessing upon us? Father, we all have equal need of you, yet we have unequal realization of this. Would you enable us to own up to our neediness before you? Would you enable us to accept and admit that we are helpless without you? Enable us to recognize this and throw ourselves upon your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you ask anyone who knows the Bible quite well and you say, where should I go in Scripture to understand what it looks like to live the Christian life, what it means to be a Christian? Well, there's a number of fairly common places in Scripture that you would go to, but one of them is the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, as it's called in Luke, and particularly to the Beatitudes, as Jesus describes life in his new world that he is inaugurating, life in Jesus' kingdom. And there's something else going on here. I don't know if you caught it, but in verse 20, he says, looking at his disciples, he said these things. Now, the crowds were gathered around Jesus, and certainly so much of what he says, all of what he says, is applicable to them in their lives, but particularly to his disciples, to those that just, in the, just recently, right prior to this uh, section of Scripture, he, it says he spent a night of prayer and then came and, and picked these 12 disciples. So in a sense, this is a commissioning service. He's speaking to the crowds, but he's speaking particularly to these 12 that he's identified as his 
heralds, as his co-ministers, as his closest partners in ministry and announcing the kingdom. And to the crowds he is speaking, but he says, looking at his disciples, he tells them this. He is commissioning them publicly and letting them know particularly what it's going to be like to live in this new world, what it's going to be like to be ministers alongside Jesus. That's what the context of these Beatitudes are. It's for the crowds, it's for all of us, but particularly it's those who are called to be ministers to Jesus. He says, I'm commissioning you to enable people to reorient their lives around what is new rather than what is now. Your job, disciples of Jesus, Steve, is to enable people to reorient their lives around the underlying truth that lies behind our experiential reality, that lies behind what we can sense and taste and touch, that there is an underlying foundational spiritual reality that is present and is growing and flourishing, and your job as a minister is to be a herald of that and to enable people to see that and to reorient their lives around it. And this is more or less what we are doing this morning in commissioning, and yes, ordaining Steve to the gospel ministry. Eugene Peterson is a, was a longtime minister, a writer, and he, in one of his uh, books called A Contemplative Pastor, writes out an ordination service from the perspective of the congregation. And he says this, we need help in keeping our beliefs sharp and accurate and intact. We don't trust ourselves. Our emotions seduce us into infidelities. We know that we are launched on a difficult and dangerous act of faith, and there are strong influences intent on diluting it or destroying it. And we want you, ordinan, minister, to give us help. Be our pastor, our minister of word and sacrament in the middle of this world's life. Do you see what Peterson is doing exactly what Jesus is doing. He's pointing out that there are two realities. There are two kingdoms that are competing against each other. One which is dying and fading away, and yet which is still seductive and still very powerful and very real. And the other which is growing and flourishing and will one day be fully experienced, and yet whose value seems sometimes very hidden and very unpretentious. The first thing that any of us intent on living the Christian life, and the first thing a minister must understand who's intent on helping the rest of us live the Christian life is to understand how to identify those patterns, to understand how to see behind what appears to be happening and understand that there is a spiritual reality behind it that is all-powerful and that is encroaching upon all that is dark and broken and falling away about our world. So two points this morning. The powerful but passing patterns of the now and the unpretentious but promising paths of the new. Now don't laugh, it took me a long time to come up with that. The powerful but passing patterns of the now. Do you notice how Jesus, we didn't read it, but he has a series of blessings that he gives us and then he gives us the woes. The warnings, don't go here. Woe to you who are rich now. Woe to you who have things now. 
that there's a now world, a present world that we can see that's powerful, but in Jesus' world, in Jesus' reality, it's passing away. He gives us a list of blessings and woes, which is very typical of prophets, pointing out where blessedness lies and where woe, where trial, where warning, where danger lies in relation to one's orientation before God. Now, we didn't read the latter half, the woes, but let me just detail them for you, uh, one, four in a row, before we then look at the blessings. What are the patterns, the values of this present world, the now world? He says that their power, their prosperity, their pride, and popularity. See, I was present on the day that they taught alliteration at seminary. Power, prosperity, pride, and popularity. He says, first of all, woe to you who are rich now. Woe to you who are rich now. And at first glance, it seems to be talking particularly about one's economic condition, about money and how much you have. But in the, in the Bible, money is simply an instrument. Jesus is talking about power and control. Last week, we saw that the opposite of being rich is not impoverishment, but it's dependence. The opposite of being rich is not being poor, economically speaking, but it's being dependent. How many of us here are truly in danger of utter starvation? Now, I don't want to minimize the fact that there could be some hard realities that we're facing, and there could be some in this room who are facing some aspect of starvation. And not to minimize that as a, as a central function of the church's role. But how many of us members, regular attendees, are in danger of actually starving to death? And yet, how many of us, if we lost our paycheck, wouldn't be in utter fear, in utter anxiety? The reason is it's not because you won't necessarily be able to meet your basic necessities, that you might starve to death. The reason we're fearful, the reason we're distraught when we get a pink slip we think that we might lose our job is because money gives us a sense of power and control over our lives. It gives us this illusion that we are in control and we can be independent of what is going on in the economy, what is going on in our neighbor's lives. I have my job, I have my money, and I'm fine. Those who use money for a sense of control are operating out of the old way out of the now, according to Jesus. The first woe is those who use money as power. Woe to you who are rich now. Then secondly, woe to you who are well-fed now. And this has to do with prosperity. People with an abundance of money don't normally give away what is beyond what takes care of their necessities, right? People with an abundance of money normally, naturally use it to feather our own nests, to afford things that are luxurious, to to buy things that make life more comfortable. Those who uh, use their money to create a life of comfort, to buy nice things, to travel well, to eat at fine restaurants, none of which of those things are evil or wrong in the abstract. But what Jesus is saying is that putting prosperity, putting well-fedness, putting comfort and having abundance as your primary goal in life, or even a primary goal in life, is indicative of someone whose values and priorities are ordered by the now world rather than the new world. 
Woe to you who are well-fed now, those who count upon and build your life and identity upon your abundance because you're liable to miss it. You're so focused upon yourself and your own life that you're going to miss what Jesus is saying about the new world and the new kingdom. Thirdly, woe to you who laugh now. We're talking about pride. Woe to you who are prideful. How does laughing have to do with pride? Well, if you notice paintings of Jesus, drawings of Jesus, normally, there's some exceptions, but normally have him looking very stern, very serious, very holy. Now, I have this little thing that my mom gave me when I was a child, and it's a picture of Jesus, and I've kept it by my desk for many years. I've had it since childhood, and the reason I love it so much is not because it's good art, but because Jesus is smiling on it. Jesus is smiling. I wish I could find this huge picture of Jesus that he, where he's just cracking up, where he's just dissolving into laughter, because I think that's what was typical of Jesus. I think he smiled a lot. I think he laughed a lot. I think he was frivolous at times. This sort of laughing that Jesus is saying woe to is not that sort of smile. It's not that sort of frivolity. It's not that sort of delight. Laughing here has a negative connotation in the Greek. It's smugness. It's dwelling on one's success. It's, it's glorying in one's triumph in this world, especially as it concerns triumphing over other people. That's the sort of self-assuredness that those who make it in this world have, and therefore they miss the promises of the new world. Jesus is saying that you may laugh in the now, you may be smug in the now because you've won the world. You're successful. You can be self-assured in the now world, but the things which you congratulate yourself on are passing away. So woe to you who laugh now. Woe to the smug and prideful person who is prideful because of what they've accomplished in the now. Power, prosperity, pride, and popularity. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. What he's saying is you've got a good reputation because you live according to what is powerful and accepted in this world, in the now world. You have a good reputation because your life doesn't challenge anyone. It doesn't cause anyone to ask, what is really going on? Am I living by the right things? You see, prophets disturb. Prophets awake people from what the Beatles call the golden slumbers. Prophets cause people to be uncomfortable. Now, Steve, as you preach regularly, you'll find yourself longing for people to tell you, that was a great sermon. That was a nice sermon. I really liked your sermon. And having those things from time to time are okay. But when you find yourself always wanting people to like your sermon, you're missing the boat. Because your job is to be a prophet. Your job is to meddle in people's lives, to make all of us feel uncomfortable, uncomfortable with all of the presuppositions that we live by that aren't tied to Jesus' kingdom. You'll upset people from time to time because you're stepping on their idols and you're pointing to a new reality and calling them out of the comfortable ways that they've gone about lives, their lives. And sometimes they're not going to thank you for it. Peterson also says, there may be times 
when we come to you, this is the congregation speaking again, when we come to you as a committee or delegation and demand that you tell us something else than you are telling us now, promise right now that you won't give in to what we demand of you. You are not the minister of our changing desires or our time-conditioned understanding of our needs or our secularized hopes for something better. With these vows of ordination, we are lashing you fast to the mast of word and sacrament so you will be unable to respond to the siren voices. If you pursue power, prosperity, pride, popularity, they will pay off for you in the now world. And that's why they're so seductive, because you get that little dopamine rush. It pays off. It works in the now world under the current regime. So maybe you're thinking, well, one day this may make sense. One day when Jesus returns and he establishes his kingdom, then it would make sense that we live in the manner that he's suggesting. But right now, i got to make a living. And if I don't grab what's mine, I'm going to get stepped on in this world. Jesus, your values, your way of life sound rather nice, but they're idealistic. They don't work in this Darwinian world. Well, think, for me, think with me for a minute. Is the afterlife, that is the coming reality, is that the only reason that we should listen to Jesus here? What he's saying is actually very commonsensical, even in the now world. If you build your sense of identity, your sense of self on your beauty, you'll get acclaim, and men will speak well of you. But what happens when they don't? What happens when your beauty fades? What happens when you grow old and you don't get the glances that you used to look that made you feel so good about yourself? Will you still have a sense of self at all? Maybe you construct your happiness around possessions, and when things are going well, you're pretty happy, but what happens when you get the pink slip? What happens when you're too old to enjoy the accoutrements of comfort that you have bought throughout life? Will you still have a sense of self? And Steve, what happens when you build your ministerial identity upon what people say about you, about how well they speak of you, about how much acclaim you get for your preaching, how many community groups you start? What happens when you begin to build your identity upon your production value as a pastor rather than Jesus being at the center of who you are? Jesus is saying, even in the now world, staking your happiness, staking your life upon these things is a losing proposition. But of course, Jesus goes far beyond that. Not only is there a present advantage to rejecting the values of the now, he says, yours is the kingdom, of course. There's a present reality to Jesus' preaching. But he also talks about the now as if it's old and as if it's passing away, as if it's dying, that there's a coming reversal of things as they are, and that those who don't prosper under the current system, those who don't prosper in the now can yet have hope. Rejoice in that day, he says, and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. He starts with blessing. We talked about the woes, but now we need to talk about the unpretentious but promising paths of the new world that Jesus is announcing. 
Instead of to the powerful, blessing will be given to those who are weak and recognize their human frailty. Instead of a life seeking pleasure for oneself, blessing comes to those who sacrifice, those who give of themselves to other people. Instead of those who seek to triumph over others, blessing comes to those who weep over their sin and the sin of the whole world. Instead of those who receive acclaim in the current system, Jesus' blessing goes to those who are excluded, those who are marginal, those who have no claim upon social status. We see how radical, how unpretentious, but promising these realities are, but we need to understand a few things before we close. Two things as we think about what does blessedness mean. How do we live blessedness? We need to understand what is Jesus actually talking about when he says poor, and what is he talking about when he says blessing? What does that mean? That's kind of an archaic word. What does that mean in Jesus' understanding? First of all, what does it mean particularly when Jesus talks about being poor? As it was, uh, as it is sometimes today in the ancient world, Being poor was a sign of God's disfavor, that they were people that were cursed by God. Those who were sick, those who were ill, those who were widows, those who were poor, those who had tragedy befall them were seen as cursed by God, that God was paying them back for some sin that they had committed. And if you remember from reading the book of Job, Job's friends came and sat around them and said, Job, the reason that this is happening to you is because you've done something wrong, because you have sinned. But Jesus turns this on its head. He says that suffering, poverty, hunger are not curses from God based upon personal sin. They are an indicative that something is wrong with the world as it is, that something is wrong with the entire world. And actually, poverty is something that's not a curse by God, something that he wants to eradicate in the new world, that it's present in the now because sin still exists, because I haven't completely renovated the world, Jesus says. Jesus isn't saying that being rich or powerful is wrong in and of itself, but it has to do with one's status, how they use that wealth, how they think about that power? Does it give them a sense of being an insider? Do they look to their wealth and their possessions to say, I am an insider. I am a real person. I am a good, important person. It has to do with an arrogant self-security that is built upon being rich and powerful, not being rich and powerful in the abstract. He is saying that those who are rich in this world are used to living on the inside, and those who are poor are used to living on the margins, but I'm changing that. Those who are in are no longer in. Those who are out have been engrafted in. And it really doesn't have to do with the amount of money in your bank account. It has to do with how you think about it. Is it your sense of value in this world? Is it your sense of self-worth? Do you build your identity around what you possess, whether it's very physical, tangible things or whether it's something more ephemeral like beauty? What are you looking to to build your sense of self? That's what Jesus is getting to. And what he is saying is that the the rich are so accustomed to being insiders is that it makes them difficult to see themselves as an outsider, the very thing that they need to see in order to understand Jesus' kingdom. 
And those who are poor, those who have always lived on the margins say, of course, Jesus. And this is true, friends, if you look at just the the current state of affairs, sociology of Christianity is that the old centers of gravity in Christianity have fallen away. The centers of wealth and centers of power in Europe and the United States are falling away and are no longer the centers of Christendom. Where is? It's below the equator. It's in poverty-ridden, oppressed people groups that Christianity is exploding like never before. And it's not because they're not as smart as us or as sophisticated as us. It's that they see their need much more readily than those of us in the West that have all of the accoutrements of comfort, that it's hard for us to say, I'm willing to give this up. But those who have nothing say, Jesus, come, bless me in spite of the fact that I don't have the physical things that I want and that I should have. In the late 90s, the smart money was put on Yahoo and Lycos and Alta Vista and InfoSeek, and people were making tons of money on these new search engines by investing in these companies. And barely a few people were second-guessing that that's where the good money was going, that people investing in those companies could predict many, many times of uh, dividends and so forth. But there were a couple of undergrads that were working down the street at Stanford on a new algorithm that was going to change the world. And they came up with something that was better than the rest. And it was these guys who didn't even graduate, and they came up with this algorithm called Google, and it changed the world, and it changed, this, changed how you interact with the Internet on a daily basis. The smart money then began to shift from some of those companies because there had been a revolution in the way that the data on the Internet was cataloged and the way that it was uh, crawled and the way that you as a consumer would find the data that you're looking for. The world had changed, and all of a sudden, Google was the one that smart money went to. I don't mean to trivialize what Jesus is saying here, but he is saying a revolution has happened, that the old, the now world has passed away, and I have brought in the new. Are you still going to live by the old world? By Web 1.0, are you going to live in the new world of 2.0 or 3.0 or whatever it is now? Are you going to live by the right side up, respectable way of life? Are you going to live by my upside down reality that puts the the insider out and the outsider in? Being poor is not simply about money and being rich. And woe to the rich is not simply about how much you have. It's how you see it and how you use it. And then finally, what is the blessing of God? What does Jesus mean when he says blessing or blessedness? Now, we don't have time to trace a full treatment of this from Scripture, so you'll just have to trust me. But I am a religious professional, so. Blessedness is often translated as happy in our, in our Bibles that we have. And there's something to that, because we don't have a term that's as grand enough that quite captures what blessedness in the Scripture means, and so we use happy. But it's not quite what it means. What blessedness means in the Bible is possessing the favor of God. It means enjoying His full embrace. It means being at peace with Him and His world. 
Far from being under the curse of God, the poor are blessed by him. Jesus is not idolizing economic poverty, but he's giving blessing to those who eschew wealth in this world, those who disavow their possessions as their means and pathway to fulfillment and happiness. The present and passing order of things will look askance at those who disavow wealth and those who go and and value those things that are not valued in this world. Those who eschew wealth and power and instead humble themselves before God can not expect blessing and recognition from the powers of the now, but can expect blessing and embrace and standing before God himself. The blessing that comes, the blessing that is given, that Jesus is bringing, is the favor of God. It is the full, eternal embrace of God. It's being at peace with God and with His world. And let me end this way with just a few comments to Steve as you listen in, just as the crowds did to Jesus. Because, Steve, being a minister is very tricky. Because you're a sinner just like all the rest of us. And so you must be willing to admit your failure and your sin. But you're also a herald of the new world that you're called to point out where woes lie and where blessings lie, both with your words as well as with your life. And that's scary. But what does that mean? Does that mean that you are supposed to be a little bit more well-behaved than the rest of us, and that's how we understand what Jesus has to say? No, that's not the point at all. You can be better behaved, that's fine, but that's not the point. What you're pointing out is that blessedness is not found in a set of behaviors in order to earn God's blessing. Our response to the Beatitudes is not to say, oh, those are the characteristics of those who are blessed, so I must be more like that. Instead, these are the the attitudes of heart. These are the spiritual receptors that, are, that, are, uh, that we as Christians need to have in order to understand and receive the feeding from God. You're not recommending a new set of behaviors that lead to blessing, but instead a new way of seeing, a new way, of, a new receptivity, a new dependence upon divine grace. Why do the poor more readily receive it? It's because they don't have the illusion that their money can get them into the club. They don't have the illusion of control that money provides. You see, you've got to emulate the actual poor, saying, I have nothing of value except Jesus himself, that what I offer to this congregation is not my own talents. It's not because I have cool glasses and more hair than the senior pastor. It is not any of that. It is that Jesus is at the center of your life, that he himself has reversed your fortunes, that at the center of your proclamation is that I was once poor and Jesus has made me rich. When you recognize grace in your own life, your poverty of spirit will then lead you to those who are actually poor in whatever way that might take shape that you will be drawn to those who are persons of need, whether it's actual poverty, whether it's spiritual poverty and darkness, that when you see that you are made rich out of Jesus' poverty, you will be drawn to those people, and then you will will lead us 
to those people as well. You'll begin to say, guys, the blessing's not over here. It's over here. Come and follow me to where Jesus is. And people will follow you. People will trust you insofar as they believe that at the center of your life is not your talent, it's not how well you speak, but it's the reversal of fortune that only Jesus can provide for you. So that's your charge. Ryan's going to give you one in a moment, but that's my personal one as a friend, is lead with the reversal of fortune that only Jesus can give to any of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this momentous occasion. We thank you that for a few moments that Steve is able to be in the spotlight and to receive uh, your attention and your recognition. But Father, I pray that none of us here would lose sight of the fact that you are calling each of us to see our need of you, that we are poor, that we are hungry. Father, would you help us to, to step forward towards you, to posture ourselves in that way so as to receive your grace, so as to be receptive of all that is new rather than what is now. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.